Hello and welcome to the UK CIF Leadership Podcast. It's Oscar here on day six of COP26 in Glasgow, discussing today UK leadership on biodiversity. Really pleased to be joined by two fantastic speakers, both UK CIF members. We're joined by uh, Dr. Natalie Petteretti. Uh, uh, Natalie is a Senior Research Fellow at the Zoological Society of London, ZSL, and also joined by Ray Durrani, Head of Sustainable Finance at WWF UK. Hello, it's James and Sally here to let you all know about our podcast sponsor. This COP26 series of the UK CIF Leadership Podcast is sponsored by Lion Trust. We're delighted to have them involved. Lion Trust is a specialist fund management company that was founded in 1995. And as of July 2021, they had £34 billion in assets under management. Their aim is to have a positive impact on their investors, stakeholders and society. We're so pleased to have them on board for this series. Without the support of our partners, the podcast would not be able to happen. So without further interruption, let's get on with the episode. Um, I think let's uh, get straight into it, if that's okay with you both. Um, maybe starting with you, Ray, if you could tell us a little bit about some of your kind of recent work at WWF UK and upcoming priorities when it comes to biodiversity and nature. Sure, and thanks for having me on this uh, podcast. Hope everyone's doing well. Um, we've been quite focused, as uh, everyone can imagine, on the climate, but also on the nature uh, question and what the UK and global community need to do. So one of our big asks has been around aligning the finance sector to the Paris Agreement um, and having mandatory transition plans in place in order to help achieve that. I think that's where the nature question could get interesting as well, because as part of those transition plans, we need nature to also play a role. Um, so that's some of our overview. We've also been focused a lot on the food um, sector and, and uh, food is the biggest driver of biodiversity loss. Um, and also sort of thematically on the question of deforestation and what that means for the finance sector, how they can play their uh, role to help avoid deforestation and conversion, uh, and ultimately how we can get to uh, deforestation-free financial portfolios. That's great. Thanks, Ray. And yeah, over to you, Natalie, for some thoughts on your um, upcoming priorities. So I'm Natalie Petrelli. I'm a scientist at the Zoological Society of London. And most of my research is on the, the relationship between biodiversity and, and climate change. So I've started by looking at ways that how climate change was impacting biodiversity. And soon I started to move into how um, biodiversity loss was mattering for uh, the climate change crisis. And so more in my work now has been on to uh, looking at uh, how we could align um, a, a solution that uh, tackle jointly the climate change and the biodiversity crisis. So I've done a lot of work or I've developed more of my work on nature-based solutions, which are those solutions that capitalize on nature basically to help us with climate change mitigation and adaptation. And in my case, I had a particular interest in rewilding. 
That's fantastic. Uh, thanks, Natalie, for uh, those opening remarks. Really interesting to hear. You're both up to a, a lot when it comes to biodiversity and nature, which is something that you know a lot of UK SIF members are increasingly paying attention to in their financial decision-making day-to-day. Um, it's probably worth us um, starting with um, some reflections on the recent COP15 Biodiversity Summit. Um, a lot of people probably aren't actually aware, and it's been underreported in the media, that the first phase of this took place actually virtually. Uh, earlier this month. And um, it'd be great to get your thoughts, uh, Natalie, on, you know, are there any sort of interesting takeaways um, from the first phase um, of COP15? Um, you know, any any key takeaways, I suppose, for those of us listening to the podcast? So I think, I think uh, so the, the outcome some, so far was the uh, coming declaration that really tend to, to re-emphase the importance of nature for, for our world and how uh, being nature positive and, and restoring nature is at the heart of, uh, of our well-being, of, 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 uh, of, uh, um, of uh, basically tackling a lot of the environmental challenges that uh, are ahead of us. Um, what is next missing is, of course, how you translate those uh, vision and uh, those commitment into uh, decision and funding. Um, and it was clear that during that first phase, you really had some form of disconnect between the political uh, level and political uh, vision and then the actual negotiator and what, what was on the table when it was uh, up to coming to action. There was also really a, a, a welcome um, admission that uh, conservation on its own won't do the tricks. It's not just about setting more protected area. It's also about um, tackling the climate change and biodiversity crisis in unison. And in that sense, it's really nice to have that kind of signal uh, from the Convention on Biological Diversity that they know that they have to work with other conventions, such as principally the uh, UNFCCC. Um, it was also interesting to see uh, the, this recognition that it's important to invest in nature restoration and acknowledge that the level of funding is way, way, way too low for what's actually needed to bring us uh, to where we need to be. Um, and then I thought it was also quite interesting to see the discussion around uh, the importance of people, of enablers. So not just talking about how much money, but also how to bring and engage people so that we all move together. So talking not only about a financial commitment, but also starting to look at capacity building, technology transfer, technical, technical support, South-South cooperation, any other form of cooperation. Also, you know, gender mainstreaming, uh, traditional and incorporated of traditional knowledge, public awareness and participation. So it's really this uh, this uh, thinking outside the box, not just as a one-off quick fix, which doesn't work, but actually starting to think as to how you move society together through a common goal. Um, so I thought it was a positive first step. I'm hoping that uh, that there will be more, and I'm hoping, but that however it helps with a uh, um, uh, with uh, COP26 discussion. That's fantastic, Natalie. And clearly, you know, a huge amount of came out of that. You talk about the investment in nature-based solutions, and it clearly there is this sort of funding gap. You know, we saw in the UK, the Green Finance Institute published a really interesting report showing this a huge investment gap. And clearly, you know, um, some of UK SIFS members will perhaps have a sort of um, more prominent role to play here in addressing this gap in the years uh, to come. Um, so we've now reflected on sort of phase one of COP15. It's probably worth jumping ahead to actually um, the full COP15, uh, the real thing that's taking place in China uh, in um, late April to May of next year, I believe it is. Um, Ray, I don't know if you've got any sort of um, things on your kind of wish list that you'd like to see uh, policymakers and others agree uh, at the sort of full um, COP15 taking place next year. 
Yeah, that's a good question, Oscar. Um, I mean, one thing I would be interested to see tackled in earnest is sort of the imported biodiversity loss a question. Um, the UK is a good example where uh, through its complex supply chains, it does have embedded biodiversity loss through that um, channel, and that needs to be tackled um, in earnest. In fact, the UK needs to reduce its global footprint by 75% to meet its planetary limits. So that, that's one angle. I mean, clearly, uh, legislation around integration of nature into transition plans would be something great to come out of uh, COP next year, uh, linking into sort of what's uh, emanating of for this COP this year in, uh, in terms of COP26. Um, and I think other areas, I mean, you could have um, integration of nature into sustainability reporting as a way to drive forward disclosure and reduction of, of negative impact. And finally, I would say uh, mandatory due diligence um, on uh, supply chains and on finance supply chains in terms of elements of nature and deforestation, I think would really help um, because we know voluntary measures are not taking us uh, fast enough, given them what the science is saying. So, I mean, those are a few different ideas, and I hope that it can be very ambitious and also, you know, take up the ambition that the climate COP this year will have. And 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 as maybe Natalie said in the beginning, the interlinkages between climate and nature are are really important. And if we don't safeguard nature, we're going to lose the climate battle anyway, and vice versa. So that kind of integrated thinking, uh, I think, is is vital. Um, and, you know, should be coming out of processes like that as well. Yeah, we absolutely agree, you know, um, with that sort of need to integrate. And actually, you know, UK CIF wrote a letter to Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, relatively recently calling on government to look at integrating nature into existing reporting requirements for financial services firms. So you've got the Sustainability Disclosure Requirements Regime, SDR. We called on the government to consider how could nature and biodiversity be integrated into that framework, which will be something the industry will be closely watching in the coming months and years ahead. Um, it'd be good to turn to you, uh, Natalie. Are there any sort of items on your uh, wish list uh, for takeaways to come out of uh, COP15 next year. It'd be lovely to hear your thoughts. I think, well, so I definitely agree with Raymond. I think on top of that, I think um, it would be a more general thing around, um, um, you know, strong nation, especially the G20, to really understand that uh, the climate change crisis is, is a really, you know, a really scary crisis, but so is the biodiversity one. So I would love to see a much more... Uh, understanding and recognition of the urgency and, and the importance of tackling that biodiversity crisis. Right now, it has been a bit of the, you know, the, the, the forgotten brother, um, um, and it hasn't got the same visibility and political leverage and, and enthusiasm to tackle it than the climate one. So, um, uh, and that sees, that shows in, a, in a, for example, the level of, a, of a investment in a restoring nature or uh, some of the development, uh, including in the financial sector. The other one I think is uh, probably um, um, trying to uh, um, um, manage to create a framework for that better integration. So yes, we, we, we need to have the climate community and the biodiversity community and, and any stakeholder that works in that sphere uh, to, re, to really work together. But for the moment, we are probably missing some of uh, some, some um, platforms or way of working that facilitate that integration. So a plan around that uh, as to how do you uh, make sure that uh, the joined up thinking happen? How do you make sure that you don't 
develop solution that will fix one problem, but maybe not fix the other or actually make the other worse. So some form of thinking around the, the tools and the platforms and the, and the space for collaboration uh, would be also uh, quite nice. On top of, of course, uh, delivering on all the vision um, and actually delivering with, with, uh, with real action um, as can be uh, detailed in the coming um, declaration. So making that a reality with negotiator bridging the gap with uh, the political stuff and really making this happen. That's fantastic, Nancy. Maybe to, um, to stick with your point on the need for sort of collaboration, you know, are there any good examples of collaboration that, you know, ZSL is doing with others um, at the moment or any other sort of collaborative initiatives that, that are taking place, uh, whether that's in, you know, our sector or kind of more widely that are kind of that is taking, um, you know, taking things forward? Well, I think, uh, so that's the, the whole point of nature-based solution, which uh, ZSL is, has been doing for a long time. It's just branded it differently. <laughs> so, you know, restoration, management of protected area, prioritization of, 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 um, of um, protected area is something that organizations such as the Zoological Society of London have done for quite a while. Um, the, the change here is the realization that uh, done in certain way, in the right way, you can really deliver on the climate change crisis and the biodiversity crisis. So a lot of the work that we do on uh, restoring uh, ecosystems that are partially good for climate change mitigation and adaptation, uh, such as mangrove, for example, um, or um, anything in tropical forest, or um, restoration of seabeds, um, so work on seagrass, uh, is really uh, something that, um, that uh, shows that uh, how to bring up disintegration, because you have to think about um, how does that affect the carbon circle, uh, cycle, and how does it help with mitigation and adaptation, and, and and communicate that with the community you're working with and uh, seeing whether that, that's something they're happy with. But also thinking about the biodiversity benefits as to uh, um, do you actually have the biodiversity benefits? And the typical example is it's not because you plant tree that you increase biodiversity. Um, Woodlands and a plantation of, of tree are two different things from a biodiversity perspective. So this is the kind of uh, join up thinking that needs to happen locally on, on at the project site level, but also internationally. So think, for example, about the two scientific uh, platform, the IPCC and the IPBEST. There's, there's not much discussion for the moment between those two. Actually, the first report between those two only happened uh, this year in 2021. So uh, more of this is uh, what I was referring to. That's great. Thank Nancy. And, and Ray, we get to get your thoughts, you know, WWF, uh, you know, whether that's yourself or other colleagues sort of involved in any, um, you know, collaborative initiatives at the moment, or, you know, well, you know, what's in store? Are you guys looking to sort of partner with, with anyone else in the space? You know, clearly there's, there's a lot that all you need to do to, to move things forward. Um, so yeah, interested to hear your thoughts on, yeah, anything that's coming down the track. Sure. Um, I think you're right to point out the, the need for collaboration uh, and I think that spans across NGOs, but also private sector and government, in fact, on these questions. Um, and I think also just to flag, I mean, because the, the audience is, is, I guess, primarily uh, almost entirely UK financial sector, that the UK finance sector could be exposed to up to 40 billion in investments and lending to companies that trade in forest and ecosystem risk commodities. So I think the risk is there. It's being understood um, uh, you know, better now. I, we, we published a, a piece with Omnia and Wahlberg recently, which, which uh, details some of that. And I think these risks are coming to light and, it, and I think investors and banks need to actually pay attention to them, particularly as the policy and regulatory landscape shifts. 
um, customers are more demanding, and ultimately getting a better handle on risk itself will lead to better long-term adjusted risk adjusted returns. So I think, yes, <laughs> collaboration will be key on that, but I think that that also means that individual actors need to play their role and um, assess the risk efficiently with regards to what the science is saying. Um, and yes, we are we are open to various uh, collaborative efforts across industry and civil society, um, and and with, with increasingly with with government as well. And it's it's really encouraging to see the government move on this wider agenda. Um, probably more so on climate at the moment, but I think the nature piece is brewing, um, and you know there will be uh, there are announcements this week and um, there will be more uh, forthcoming on on that and then hopefully the integration of the nature and climate piece in order to tackle um, environmental ills more more closely together um, and also the links to things like uh, human rights due diligence and other areas so a lot to be done and uh, we certainly can't do it you know sitting in silos and doing it alone for sure that's great, Ray. Thanks very much. Um, we talked a little bit about regulation so far and the need for, you know, things like SDR, the Sustainability Disclosure Requirements Framework, to incorporate nature-related risks. Something that's looking really promising, um, you know, for us at UK Surfit is TNFD, the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, building off or effectively mirroring the TCFD model. Um, it'd be great to get thoughts, um, you know, perhaps from you, Natalie, first on, you know, what, what promise could TNFD hold? I think the framework is, is meant to be uh, tested, I think, at some point in 2022, and then formally launched in 2023. But um, yeah, any any thoughts on the, you know, what benefits TNFD uh, could hold uh, in terms of quantifying uh, some of these risks? So it could certainly uh, bring a unifying framework for uh, uh, disclosure to encourage the uptake of biodiversity uh, measurement. Um, but there, there's quite there's a quite a lot. Of, so um, it definitely brings biodiversity at the same level of climate when it comes to recognizing that this is an important, urgent issue uh, that we need to to tackle. It definitely uh, uh, provide a, a, a possibility to uh, start to acknowledge how um, financial institutions uh, relate to the biodiversity crisis and start to have a framework for discussion as to how to reduce uh, that impact. I think um, that it, what's important to acknowledge, though, is that it might not be as straightforward as uh, the climate equivalent, uh, the TCFD, um, uh, because uh, biodiversity is a, is a multi-dimensional concept um, that uh, takes into account uh, from from genes to ecosystem, uh, from functionality to composition. It's a it's a it's a quite difficult thing. To measure, and so there will be uh, quite some discussion as to how you develop um, a platform of guidelines that really enable financial institutions to deal and engage with that complexity. And in a way, it's much more complex than the climate one, where where ultimately you're talking about carbon. Um, but it's it's a it's a good step, I think. It's um it's a difficult step. I think this is typically a, a good example where you're gonna need to uh, collaborate with the scientists. You're gonna need to reach out of the comfort zone for a financial institution and really go to the biodiversity expert, to the scientists, to the people that manage biodiversity on the ground to make sure that what you come up with uh, delivers on the vision you want to see happening. 
That's great, Nancy. Avray, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts. You know, clearly, you know, it is very promising, uh, but also there will be huge challenges in terms of, you know, uh, how do we how do we measure something as, as complex, as vast as biodiversity, which, you know, means so many different things to so many different people, depending on who you're talking to. Um, and in terms of, you know, where do you decide what a priority is? Is it soil quality? Is it, you know, uh, you know, marine quality? It's just so vast and overwhelming, seemingly. But uh, yeah, how can you how can one address that perhaps in the in the framework? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with Natalie. Um, and disclosure is an important element of this. Obviously, this is a, a complex issue, so disclosure can play a role. It's not a silver bullet, um, you know, akin to the fact that TCFD is not a silver bullet for climate. Um, it's not as if if you're an investor in a bank and you're comply with TCFD, then your job's done. I think that's a starting point. And TNFD, as complex as it will be, will be a start point. I mean, to your question, Oscar, I think. Um, Nature is much more, I guess, um, spatially explicit, or that element is much more important. I think that Natalie was touching on. So where things are, and 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 that matters a lot. Um, and we found that using uh, spatial data and you know geolocations and satellites as a way to actually get a handle on nature risk um, in locality, you know, as it crosses over with development data sets, um, is probably a lot more important than climate, where ultimately things are more fungible. You know, a ton of carbon saved here to some degree is equivalent to a ton of carbon saved there. Uh, such is not the case with nature. So I guess this whole advent of spatial data, spatial finance, um, uh, and understanding the realities on the ground for nature-related risks um, is really important. And that's where proper due diligence needs to be done by the finance and corporate sector in terms of ultimately where the see-through is to, to assets on the ground um, and, and, and what the nature dynamic is because that's that you know spatially explicit local information becomes paramount and i do hope that tnfd uh, can integrate some of that as much as possible um, but i would also encourage listeners to certainly look beyond tnfd and you know i think we might get into the Descupta review questions but essentially the whole economic model needs to incorporate nature uh, which it hasn't been doing and so you know, there, there won't be a single silver bullet there to achieve that. Um, TNFD is part of it. Transition plans is part of it. Um, mandatory due diligence is another piece. There, there's various elements. And of course, every investor and bank will have a different portfolio um, and different categorization of risks. So it is quite individual as well. Um, but that's not to scare anyone off. I think it's really exciting space. It's very tangible. Um, and, you know, they can really help to make the world a better place by actually getting a better handle on, on this risk and um, seeing how they can reduce it and ultimately lead to kind of um, positive nature restoration um, in, in the UK and the world at large. Thanks very much, Ray. And I think we'd very much agree with the sort of, you know, positive uh, verdicts on TNFD, but while recognizing there are these sort of huge challenges uh, to, to overcome in such a complex area as biodiversity. And UK CIF is really pleased to have just joined us as members of the TNFD Forum, which is a sort of wider group of experts and stakeholders to advise um, on TNFD's work going forward. Um, you mentioned uh, the Desgupta review, Ray, uh, which neatly uh, teased me up for one of our final questions for our, our podcast. Um, it'd be great to get thoughts maybe first from you, Nassi, on you know, what do you think has been the impact of the Desgupta review? Um, and, you know, to what extent has this really taken things further forward? You know, there seems to be an increasing collective awareness in the UK, among other jurisdictions, of the challenges we face. You know, to what extent do you think um, does Gupta's review should get some of the credit for that? 
Well, I think I think it should get a lot of credit because it's it is a landmark report and really a strong message to uh, to governments <laughs> that uh, you just can't continue with the by with the economical model that we have. It's just not tenable to continue to not uh, value and recognize the importance of nature uh, for uh, the for our economies, our well being for everything. Um, I think it's it's quite interesting also to to place the context of that review within generally um, the UK's uh, uh, role on biodiversity. I have to say that the UK, UK government has done quite several things uh, recently, whether it's uh, uh, leading the Global Ocean Alliance to protect 30% of the world ocean, whether it's uh, signing the Leaders' Pledge for Nature, um, whether it's uh, um, recently um, the uh, net positive um, uh, report by Natural England, uh, Nature Scotland, etc. Uh, taking on the presidency of COP26 and really pushing for nature to be there and to be discussed. That's, that's quite, quite new for, uh, for the UNFCCC to have such a strong nature agenda. Um, and I think all of this, so the, what I'm trying to say here is that that GUSPA review that the, is not uh, is, is incredibly important, but also is part of a general move within the UK to start to have that discussion uh, on different level. Um, so if we go back to the uh, Dagupspa review, I think it's um, it's um, what's going to be important here is first, how is it taken by a government? Uh, because it's an independent review. So how do you translate that into actual action? And uh, uh, maybe uh, second one, how how this is gonna uh, uh, at which pace it's gonna be uh, happening because we, we just don't have much time. Um, so that that would be my thoughts on yeah, this. Yeah. Particularly agree on your final point, Natalie. And in the letter that I mentioned that UK CIS sent to the Chancellor, one of the key recommendations in that to government on behalf of the sector was was calling on Treasury to commit to a formal process to implementing the findings of the Tesco's review. Obviously, it's been a seminal piece of work. Great to have it, but as you say, yeah, what are the next steps? How is the government going to commit? To bring some of its recommendations into legislation, or at least you know perhaps consider them um, for the sector and business. Um, Ray, it'd be really good to get some of your thoughts, if, if that's okay, on on the impact of the scripture review and what you think this has been. Sure, I mean I I think and I hope it can do for nature what the Stern review sort of did for climate, um, which is to really provide that uber piece around the importance, the link to our economic and financial system, um, some recommendations and impetus for real action. So yes, you're right. Oscar, that now um, the proof will be in what is taken up. And so it's really encouraging to see that that letter. Um, and, you know, we can't stop at the just the, the stage of um, elucidating the problem. So I think it's done that really well. And we've already seen the nature agenda pick up in the last year that it, it hadn't. Um, and I think rising up the investor and banks agenda, uh, civil society agenda, and that can form like the bedrock for this whole this whole piece. And Ultimately, if we build an economic and financial system that incorporates nature and climate, then we will build a more resilient system that'll be better to, to deal with long-term shocks anyway. So it's um, that's how I'm seeing it. Uh, obviously, it needs to be proven now. Um, and you know, we have to, to push the government and other actors to, to really take it up. Yeah, totally agree. Let's uh, yeah keep the pressure up. Purposes, you know, something that you know WF and, and UK CIF and then ZSL can, can all do together. Keep keep the heat up on the government to act. Um, we're sort of slowly coming towards um, the end of, of our podcast, unfortunately. But um, perhaps um, Natalie, you know, do you have any sort of any final messages to leave for our listeners today? Yeah, I mean, if I was to say something, I would say, uh, uh, please 
uh, acknowledge and understand the urgency. Uh, this is not just a, a, a theoretical discussion. It's, it's the number of years we have to get it right. It's really, really minimum. So we, we can't continue to delay action. It's just not justifiable anymore. And in that, in that respect, it's really important that people, uh, um, uh, particularly the financial sector and the industry, um, uh, engage uh, on biodiversity and start to um, uh, uh, see that they are important actors and that they can change things and help change things and so not wait for others to come up with plans, but actively engage to try to help to draw those plans. Um, and then maybe also something around uh, uh, walking the walk. Um, so it, we, we can continue to have a lot of talk about what should be the vision, but eventually we need to move into implementation. And um, the only way to lead properly on this is to walk the walks. So if you want to get others to change, you actually need to yourself go through change. You can't continue to go to other country and say, do this, 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 and not doing it here. Um, so, and that means uh, for the industrial sector, for the financial sector, to really um, go for that transition and, and go now. That's great. Some really clear messages uh, to our audience who I said, you know, will mainly be financial services representatives. Um, Ray, um, same with you. Any sort of final takeaways for uh, for the industry? Yes, I think it is a complicated question and it's multifaceted, but I think don't let that scare you. I've, I've seen investors actually take a piece of it and say, okay, we're going to start here, you know, whether it be World Heritage Sites or another way to look at the problem. Uh, and, and we're happy to help with that. But that's that's what this the the action is demanding right now is take take a piece of it, um, work with each other pre competitively where you can you know work with NGOs, uh, encourage the government to actually set a level playing field and you know we need to detail this whole area out and uh, but you shouldn't be scared off by the complexity to just kind of you know uh, wait around as Natalie saying we don't have the time and actually you will generate better long term returns and secure customers because they they really care about this stuff in earnest now. It's the, the amount of attention on this agenda now is real and palatable and growing. So even from a purely business perspective, it it you know it's important that um, that financial institutions really get get on this train and um, you know seek help where needed. But obviously that's also a way to to help shape the world for the better and also give us a chance on the climate side. So yes, I would say and the other thing, maybe the final thing is where is your financial solution having the biggest negative impact on nature? That's a good place to start. You know, that will be different um, depending on um, how the institution is set up and their, their portfolios, et cetera. Um, but always start with your biggest risk. Um, that's where you're gonna have the most impact and that's where you're gonna have the biggest risk reduction. And, and that's how you can address the fact that we need to do a lot this decade, including having emissions and stopping the destruction of nature. So um, today is a good time to really dial this up and um, yeah, increased progress on sort of nature and biodiversity. Thanks very much, Ray. Again, a really a good clear set of messages for, for UK CIFS members. Um, just wanted to thank you both so much for taking part in our podcast today. It's been a really excellent discussion. We've covered uh, heaps of ground. Uh, just to say to all of our listeners, don't forget to like, subscribe, and tune in to our other episodes coming up throughout COP26 in Glasgow. And you can find us on Twitter at, at UK CIF, all one word. Speak soon. <laughs>